0: Uh, You guys can go ahead, turn your Bibles over to uh, Philippians chapter 3, and uh, what I wanted to talk about today is the title of our message is Convictions for the Meantime, and so I'm going to explain a little bit about what that means, but before I do, I wanted to ask the question, anyone ever grow up watching the Brady Bunch, maybe reruns, quite a few people grew up watching the Brady Bunch, Uh, just an iconic show, Uh, you know... Family in the 1970s is when it originally aired. Uh, The reason why I know about the Brady Bunch is because in the 1990s there was a movie made called the Brady Bunch movie. Uh, And so they made this Brady Bunch movie. And one of the things that was really uh, interesting about how they made the Brady Bunch movie is they had a decision to make uh, of whether or not they would set the movie in the 1970s or if they would update it so that it would be a 1990s version of the Brady Bunch family. Uh, And I don't know about you, I can't imagine a 1990s Brady Bunch family. It just doesn't seem to fit the vibe. Uh, But what they decided to do in the movie in the 1990s was (coughs) they uh, decided to take all of the original characters in the 1970s with their 1970s fashion sense, uh, their 1970s sort of family sitcom morality, And they decided to place them in the 1990s, uh, where they would kind of clash with the culture of the 1990s. And so they drew upon the humor of the 1970s Brady Bunch family in the middle of this 1990s world. And they made this updated version of the Brady Bunch family. Uh, And so there's, on the right, is the the movie picture, the graphic for the, the Brady Bunch movie. Uh, and once again, they're perfectly cast in the Brady Bunch movie to, to redo the Brady Bunch. But I love the subtext of this picture. They're back to save America from the 90s. And I don't know about you. I grew up in the 90s. Nobody saved me from the 90s. Uh, I had the the bowl haircut in the 1990s. Uh, I had the Jinko jeans, if you know what those were, with the the neon like bubble letters in the back uh, pocket. Uh, And then it graduated to the the Tommy Hilfiger jeans with the, you always had to have the hammer hoop. Uh, I was not the woodworker as Tim is, but you had to have the hammer hoop because that's where the Tommy Hilfiger logo was, and you had to have the K-Swiss shoes and all those things. Nobody saved me from any of that, Uh, not even the Brady Bunch. But what I love about that image is that the Brady Bunch was like this little pocket of the 1970s in the middle of the 1990s. Uh, And I think that is a picture of what we're going to talk about today as we get into Philippians chapter 3. Christians right now, all of us as Christians, we live between the day that we became a Christian and the day that we will one day be resurrected to be with God and God's people for all of eternity. In other words, we live uh, bookended by those two days, uh, so we live in the meantime. Uh, And we need some convictions to have in the meantime if we're going to live as faithful Christians today. Uh, And that means that God's not done with us yet. God is still working in each of our lives. Uh, It means that we're going to experience some frustration in our lives as we continue to grow and to mature in our faith. And it also, as we think about the picture that we're going to look at in Philippians 3, Christians Even as we're a work in progress, we live as this colony of heaven in the middle of a fallen world. That's the picture that we're going to see in Philippians chapter 3. We're supposed to be this little pocket of heaven, uh, this little colony of heaven, even in the middle of a world that lives very different than how we live, and as a result, there's going to be a culture clash inevitably. The characteristic of the meantime in the Bible is frustration. Just read Romans chapter 8 sometime on your own. It talks about how creation will be subject to frustration. Even us will be groaning inwardly. Uh, It describes this really difficult tension of living in the meantime. And we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. Uh, We're going to kind of work backwards through this passage that we're going to look at today, Uh, at least backwards, paragraph by paragraph. But we'll start in verse 17 on earthly things. And so he's describing much of the world around us that lives as enemies of the cross. It doesn't tell us specifically who these enemies of the cross are, uh, but it does describe what they're like, that their their destiny is destruction. The path of their life is headed there. Uh, Their God is their stomach. In other words, he's saying the God of their life is their appetites, their desires, their urges. Uh, Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Uh, It's amazing how the world just inverts the values of God's kingdom and flips it upside down so that things that uh, really are shameful, they'll glory in. And all of us at one time did that, right? Uh, Their mind is set on earthly things. There's a focus to the way that they think about life uh, that's different from what Christians are called to do in their own life. And then he goes on and he has this word, but. So there's a contrast here. Uh, There's the enemies of the cross, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like his glorious body. And so in contrast to all of that, our citizenship is in heaven. And the main implication here is that uh, our identity and mindset is on heavenly things, not on earthly things. And our destination is life with Christ, not destruction. And our God is the Lord Jesus, not uh, our stomach or our appetites. Our glory is in Christ and in His transforming power, uh, not in, uh, in shameful things. And so there's this contrast between the way that the enemies of the cross live and the way that we live as citizens of heaven. And so we, in contrast to being enemies of the cross, we bear the cross and we boast in the cross because the cross is seen in our understanding as the the hope of the world, the hope of of our, our own salvation. Now, the the Philippians, they understood, and this is why I talked about a colony of heaven, they understood what it meant to be a colony. Uh, They were actually the leading colony of of that area. Uh, They were a colony of Rome. We know that from the book of Acts. But but they were a a strategic uh, military center where Rome had made Philippi into a Roman colony. And what that meant was that the citizens there were mostly soldiers who had served their time, And who had been rewarded with full citizenship. And so Philippi as a city became essentially a fragment of Rome. It was outside of Rome. But it was very much like Rome. It had the flavor of Rome. Roman style clothes. And Roman magistrates governed. And they had Latin as their language that was spoken. Roman justice was administered. Roman morals were observed. Everything about Philippi was Roman. And so they were this colony of Rome. And in the same way, the church in Philippi was to be like a colony of heaven. Their citizenship was in heaven. And so the the king of heaven should be our king. And the values of heaven should be our values. And the priorities of heaven should be our priorities. And the relationships that we're going to have in heaven, well, that's what we're embracing as citizens of heaven because our our identity is found there. We're a colony of heaven right here in the Chippewa Valley. And so it's this inspiring picture that we have of our lives as the Chippewa Valley Church, our, our church family is to be this colony of heaven. And I think that presents an issue because the temptation would be that we come to church and we maybe look around and kind of scope everybody out for a moment and go, huh, you guys aren't so much like heaven at all, are you? And we start to to think a little bit about other people and go, oh, if you guys were more like heaven, you guys would treat me a little bit differently. You guys might love me a little bit more. You guys might treat me a little bit differently. Uh, I would feel a little bit better about things if we were a little bit more like heaven. And the truth is, that's probably true. We all would. But here's the question that I would ask us this morning is, are you a consumer or a crossbearer? Think about the difference between the enemies of the cross and the citizens in heaven. Think about the enemies of the cross and how their God is their stomach. Their God is their their desires, their urges. It's what they want. That's their mindset. And in contrast to that, we know that when we, we became disciples, we became cross bearers. We see the cross as... As the disciples would later find out, after Jesus' resurrection, we see that the cross is the pathway to life, and death is the way to resurrection. And so, you know, this consumer mindset is the exact opposite of being a crossbearer. The consumer mindset, which is all around us, by the way, Amazon is, you know, feeding us things every day, you might also like this or that. They're always giving us things that we might like, because they're feeding into that desire to get what you want. You know, the consumer mindset is self-serving, and it will either be transformed or weeded out in this time uh, as we make our way towards heaven. Consumers ultimately will not sneak their way into heaven. The cross-bearer mindset, in contrast, is self-sacrificing. In the interest of Christ and others, just like Jesus, just like Timothy, just like Epaphroditus, just like the Apostle Paul that we've already read about in the book of Philippians. But this cross-bearer mindset, heaven is going to be filled with cross-bearers, and the chief among them will be Jesus himself. That's what heaven will be like, people sacrificing for the sake of others. Heaven will be filled with people who boast in the cross and who see the cross as the way to to resurrection and dying to self as the pathway to life. A cross-bearing culture, like the 1970s and the 1990s, a cross-bearing culture will always clash with a consumer culture. People will always look at your life, your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates will look at your life and go, why in the world would you spend all of your time and energy that way? And I remember when I was, uh, actually this was, I thought of this story yesterday, but I remember when I I first took Stevie, my wife, uh, to visit my grandpa who's now passed away, but Uh, to visit my grandpa. My grandpa was not a Christian. Uh, He had some sort of experience when he was in the military that turned him off to to Christianity. Uh, But I remember I I brought her, Stevie, to meet my grandparents for the very first time. And this gives you a little bit of an indication about what my grandpa was like. He was an amazing man in, in a lot of respects. But Uh, After about 20 minutes of sitting there at the dinner table, I remember my grandpa leaning over the table with his elbow on the table pointing in my face, telling me that I'm wasting my time in the ministry. And if I really did what mattered, uh, I would care a lot more, uh, this sounds so relevant now, I would care a lot more about politics. I mean, this was probably, what, more than 10 years ago now, but, but... He saw things very differently about the world than I saw it. And it was very obvious in that moment. There was a clash of values. And so there's three convictions that I want to talk about today about uh, how do we live in the meantime? What are convictions for a church or for us as Christians of how we live in the meantime? And the first one I want to talk about is waiting eagerly. In the meantime, there's a lot of waiting that's going on. Uh, Paul says in verse 20, And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one implication of living in the meantime is that Jesus has not yet come again. And everything has not yet been brought under His control. And our lowly bodies have not yet been transformed. Uh, everything about the world we live in right now as Christians is not yet. There's a waiting for Jesus uh, to, to come and to, by his power to transform and to bring everything under his control. We are in a position of waiting. And personally, I don't like waiting a whole lot. I don't like waiting at all, as a matter of fact. When we have that congregational midweek on Zoom and then we got to go into the breakout room and they count down back from 10, I'm thinking, just put me in the breakout room. We don't have to wait and count down. You know, I think about uh, how quickly I want to respond and beep the horn when somebody stopped at a red light and doesn't go when it turns green right away. I need to wait patiently with the things in my life that are not yet made right. Maybe a lack of self-control with words. This morning, I, you know, I went downstairs, I had my quiet time, and all of a sudden, before you know it, like, laundry is being thrown in, and everybody's coming downstairs to grab something, and, I, and I'm trying to be close to Jesus, but there was some things that were starting to bubble up in my own thinking in that moment. Uh, But lack of self-control with words or with time or maybe with social media or responsibilities. Lack of patience with my kids. Lack of love or encouragement and gratitude or or just sheer selfishness. There's things that repeatedly appear in our lives that we have to wait, in one sense, uh, before that will ultimately be dealt with. You know, I tend to feel like when I see sin in my own life, I tend to feel like I should be better than this. You ever have that where you struggle with something? I should be beyond this by now. I should be further along in the spiritual journey. I thought that was behind me already. But how are we supposed to wait? Well, Paul tells us to wait eagerly. And what's interesting about it, it, eagerly sounds like impatiently sometimes. That's not the idea here. The idea is eagerly, there's a patience to it. It's anticipation for what's to come. But it's not impatient and angry with grumbling and complaining like we talked about in Philippians 2. Waiting patiently does not mean passively doing nothing. It does not excuse ongoing repentance or a lack of it, therefore. It simply acknowledges that we live in the meantime and I'm still a work in progress as are everyone else. So we have to wait eagerly. Secondly, the second conviction that we need comes from verse 15 and 16. So this is where we're going backwards. He says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. You know, the second thing we need a conviction on is to think clearly. That's essentially what our whole series in Philippians has been all about. It's been about our mindset and learning to to adopt the mindset of Christ, to think clearly, to have a maturity in our thinking. This is what renewed a renewed mind is all about. But Paul tells us that mature Christians should be like-minded. We should take a a common view of things. So we should have this like-minded Uh, focus in our thoughts but he goes on he says that if at some point you think differently in other words he's allotting for the fact that actually in a church you're going to have people that think differently on different points or issues and he tells us that God will make it clear uh, if you think differently So what happens if we think differently on some point? Well, God will make it clear. He'll make it clear maybe through instruction from somebody else. Maybe it's through uh, discussion with other Christians. But what I'm amazed by is Paul didn't feel the need to fix other people's thinking immediately. I mean, he could have said, if you think differently on some point, well, I'm going to straighten that out right about now but he leaves it open and just says, God will make that clear to you. He didn't feel the need to fix everyone's thinking immediately. Uh, And the other thing that amazes me about this is Paul didn't see God as distant and uninvolved and aloof, but he understood that God was intimately involved in our thinking, in our mindset. And this should greatly affect how we lead people and disciple one another and pray for each other because we should see that God is intimately involved in the way that each of us thinks. We have to leave room for God to work and to mature our thinking and to give one another the same space and time to mature in our thinking as well. We can't expect 20 years of Christian wisdom and experience in a two-year-old Christian. On the other hand, we also shouldn't expect two years of Christian wisdom and experience in a 20 year old Christian. And you can tell in Paul's writing, there's actually a nudge here. He's suggesting hey, all of us should, if we're mature, think the same way, we should have this same mindset. But we should expect that we all are making every effort to mature in Christ and that we're living up to what we have already attained. You know, we can all agree on embracing the mindset of Christ, but what that looks like in any given point or issue may be different in the moment. Can we have gracious expectations when we disagree on certain matters? The third conviction. So wait eagerly and think clearly. The third conviction is to press on. And Paul goes on and he tells us uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Not that I have already obtained all this, or I have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amazingly, in this passage, the Apostle Paul tells us that he himself had not obtained all this. In other words, he had not obtained all that Eli had preached about last Sunday when he talked about uh, knowing Christ and becoming like him in his death. He recognized that, that he was still a work in progress himself, and so we made that clear that he had not yet arrived spiritually. What's amazing about that is he had been a Christian for maybe 30 years. Maybe 30 years at this point, and he's still looking at his life going, I haven't obtained all this. There's still a way to go in this journey. There's still things to press on further towards. And maybe the reason that sometimes we don't press on like Paul did is because we think we've basically arrived we basically kind of got there, so uh, maybe we can grow a little bit here and there. But because we don't recognize that, hey, we haven't obtained all of this. We are yet to be like Jesus as the crucified Messiah. So let's press on all the more. And Paul presses on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of him. That's an amazing statement. That Paul saw his own conversion to Christianity as Jesus taking hold of his life. And that's what happened in any one of our lives when we became a Christian. Jesus took hold of your life. And it's so easy to to view our conversion maybe in a humanistic uh, viewpoint where we think, well, basically, you know, I started to study the Bible and, uh, you know, my parents were church, or Christians at church, and so I started to study the Bible. I came to church, and then, you know, I did a few changes in my life and so forth. But we can see it as, in other words, all the things we did along the way, rather than actually Jesus was drawing us to himself and taking hold of our life. Now, he took hold of Josh Rizzo's life and Jake Cornick's life and Christy Pede's life. Jesus took hold of your life. Yeah, and so Paul says that he's committed to this one thing, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal. You know, If you look back at your Christian life in the meantime, and you go, you know, I, I've had some victories along the way. Well, Paul's message to you would be just forget about it. Forget about it. Don't get puffed up, but just press on. And if you've had some failures along the way, Paul's message would be what? Forget about it. Forget about it. Don't be discouraged. Be determined. I remember Steve saying and discipling me, uh, and one time I was so discouraged, I just rem- remember him saying that line that has stuck with me for the last 15 years or so. Don't be discouraged. Be determined. Strain towards the goal. Go hard for the finish line. Don't slack off. Don't half-step it. Don't just take the easy route. But press on because God has given us this upward calling in Christ Jesus, this heavenward calling in Jesus. And so let's just think about this. How are you growing in your own knowledge and relationship with Jesus? If that's at the root of, of what we're pressing on towards, to know Christ, I love that line in Philippians 3.8 where, where he says, I consider everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. There's this immense value for knowing Christ intimately. How are you growing in your knowledge and relationship with Jesus? Now to be fair, I don't know that I always think uh, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I don't know that I think about Jesus That way all the time. But that doesn't discourage me. It actually excites me. Because what that means is Paul who knew Jesus very well. There must be way more that I don't know about who Jesus is. And so it's actually an encouraging thing. Like I can go back to the Bible and get my Bible open. And I can grab my cup of coffee and my pen. And I can get my journal out. And I can start spending time with Jesus. And draw close to Jesus because I want to know Him the way the Apostle Paul knew Him. And I could strive towards a deeper relationship with Him. You know, last weekend, my wife, Stevie, uh, she planned a three-day retreat uh, to just go away to read and turn off everything and just spend time with God. And so uh, we knew that was coming at some point, that she was going to get a little bit of a retreat. Uh, We were excited about that, but finally an opportunity came for us to make it happen. And so she goes on this retreat, and of course when she comes back, my question is, how was it? And she just came back and she described the most amazing time where she was just in awe of Jesus. It wasn't a bunch of just religious things and, hey, I should change this. It wasn't like self-reflection. It was literally... As focused as you could think, it was about Jesus. He was in awe of Jesus. And I'm not under the illusion that we're always going to have that attitude or that sense of awe 24-7. But when's the last time you recognize the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus? You know, we we talked about it this last week. We were in the car, uh, and she just said, we were talking about her retreat, and she said, you know, life just has a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise. Uh, The retreat, we were talking about this point right now, but she said the retreat wasn't convenient. It wasn't easy to make it happen. There was shuffling around of our life to make it happen so she could go away uh, in something more than just a quiet time, but be able to spend time away with God. And she was unsure about what to expect. And so part of straining and pressing on was actually involved arranging life to make the retreat happen. You know, we need alone time with Jesus. You cannot rush intimacy. You cannot hurry it along. And so just ask yourself that question. How are you growing in your knowledge and relationship with Jesus? Secondly, ask yourself this. How are you becoming more like the crucified Jesus? It's not just knowing Him. It's not just having this close relationship with Him. But over time, because we know Him, we become like Him. That's what Philippians 3, verse 10 is all about, is I want to know Christ and and His suffering and the power of His resurrection and so forth. You know, I think about in my own life uh, how hurried, to use the point I just made, how hurried and anxious I sometimes can be. And how I know that Jesus wasn't that way. Even with all of his responsibilities, everything going on in life. uh, After all, he's only trying to save the world. And yet, he didn't go through life hurried and rushed and anxious. Like so many of us do, and I know I do. You know, I think about how I don't want to grumble and complain because Jesus didn't. Think about unfair suffering. Jesus could have found all sorts of reasons to complain, to grumble, and yet he didn't. I think about how I want to be more confident and daring in my evangelism because Jesus was. That's how Jesus lived his life. He was confident. He was bold. He said what needed to be said. He shared at every opportunity that he had. Just do a study of Jesus' life and how often he was telling people about the kingdom You know, I want to be more selfless and loving because Jesus was. And so we have to make decisions about how are we going to strain ahead. In the meantime, when we're on this journey, before we have yet to arrive and to be transformed uh, entirely, how are we going to press on in this journey? And so this is how we need to strive in the meantime, to wait eagerly and to think clearly, and to press on. And I would tell you that a group of people who lived like that would be an inspiring colony of heaven right in the middle of the Chippewa Valley. A church like that would both compel and clash with the world around us. And that's what we want to strive after being as we think about this passage this morning, and as we reflect on, ultimately, Jesus' cross, uh, the cross of Christ, this morning. We're going to take communion and I want us to, to continue to think about the things that in this passage as we reflect on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, we are grateful uh, for the upward calling that you've given in our life. Uh, we're grateful for the ways that you took hold of us, uh, that you drew us close. Uh, we're grateful for the ways that the scriptures uh, really... Hone in on our thinking and help us to know uh, the mindset, the heart that we're supposed to have. Please help us to continue to to grow, to mature. I pray that the church here will be an environment where all of us can grow into maturity, that we can press on and help each other uh, to mature and to be uh, growing and fruitful and effective and to live lives ultimately that are pleasing to you. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son who displayed uh, ultimately the cross-bearing life. And I pray that we would imitate him in that. Uh, It seems so counterintuitive to think about the way uh, to life is death. And I pray, Father, that you would help us to die to ourselves, uh, that we would crucify our sinful nature, uh, we would crucify the things in our life that are not pleasing to you, uh, and that we would press on to become more and more like your son, Jesus. We love you and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.